Three giant mirrors have been erected on the mountainside above the Norwegian industrial town of Rukin to bring sunlight to a town known for its winter darkness. The three mirrors installed on the mountain wall about 1,500 feet above the Rukin Market Square are 550 square feet in total and will become operational on Wednesday. They are designed to catch the sun's rays and reflect them down on Rukin in an elliptical shape of about 6,500 square feet. The reflected light will be between 80 and 100 percent as bright as direct sunlight. The mirror has two axes on which it moves and a computer program that will follow the sun's path during the entire year. Local artist and resident Martin Andersen, who conceived the idea, calls it a health project to promote well-being. Rukin, some 109 miles from the capital Oslo, is situated along the floor of a narrow valley. During the long winter, from September to March, the town of approximately 3,000 residents lives in perpetual shade. Aston Haugen, the Sun Mirror project manager in Tin Municipality, and the man responsible for developing the project, is confident they will make a significant difference. It's important to have the sun in winter time, and uh, in the, this uh, town we have we didn't have the sun six months uh, a year in winter time, and the people up here they are they want to have the sun uh, down. We, uh, we have made a cable car to to get up to the mountains, take people uh, uh, quickly up to the mountains. But now we also have an old, hundred uh, years old uh, idea, uh, make them uh, realistic. Uh, we take the mirror and reflect the sun down to us. Uh, so, so it's a crazy idea, and, uh, but uh, it's funny, and uh, I think uh, the people like it. The concept itself is not new. It was first floated back in 1913 by a local factory worker. A local industrialist considered the idea, but opted instead for a gondola that could carry sun-starved residents up to the mountaintops for a dose of natural light. The gondola is still in use, but local officials hope their new mirrors will attract more visitors, help retain residents, and reflect a proactive attitude that others could emulate. Live there? Anyone say seasonal affective disorder? Wow! Hey, can you imagine six months? Three thousand people live there too. I don't think any vacation homes from those in Oslo, though. It's amazing. Well, welcome to our our new series. For the next five weeks, we're going to explore five ways that we reflect who God is to the world He loves. And I'm really excited about this series. We're going to be digging into this and and exploring this and and really coming out of this the early stories of, of Genesis. Do you know that that's why we were made? That God placed you, me, each one of us, in His creation, so that we could reflect Him to the world. In the earliest stories of Genesis, humans are given a shocking description. Humans are called, wait for it, images of God. We hear that maybe too often. It, it's actually. A really surprising designation. That means that God created you so that by looking at you, others would be able to see something of the God who made you. That when people and you can extend that even animals, plants, the world, when 
When they see you, they see something of their creator. This is nuts. You know, in the ancient world, there were images of God actually everywhere. But those images of God were idols. They were statues. They were pictures or maybe some weird pole. You know, something that represented the gods. And they were located in temples and in gardens and up in sacred groves and hillsides. And the only humans that ever got the title image of God were actually usually kings of some kind who had been deified into the status of sort of a demigod and, and, and the people would, would worship them. And then everyone else in the story, if you read the old epics and the old sort of Gilgamesh and, I don't know, some of the Babylonian creation stories, you find that everyone else was created usually from the blood of a slain god, the god that lost in the story, they used the blood to make all the rest of the humans who had one purpose, and that was to serve the images of God, the few who were you know, at the top of the, uh, the heap, whether that was a king or, a, or an idol or whatever. So get this, right at the very start of the Christian and the Jewish story, humans are called images of God. Every man and every woman was created to look like God, to be pictures of God in the world that he made. After narrating all the rest of God's creative works, and we're going to read about that, hear about that soon, we hear that God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And for the next five weeks, we're going to kind of play around with that image, the idea that we were created to image God or to reflect God's character and his goodness to the world. Kind of like those giant mirrors that were set up on the mountainside in, in, in Norway, where we stand at just the right angle that we are able to catch the rays of the sun and direct them into the dimly lit valley. And today we're going to look at the very first way that we do that, the primary way that we image who God is to the world he loves, which is through our worship, the worship of the one who created us all. But we're going to start at the very beginning. And I want to read for you from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And for people who are less familiar with Scripture, this is the easiest one to find because it's right at the very start. If I can find it. Translators always have something to say before you get to it. All right, there we are. So let me read this for you. Genesis 1, 1, and then just into the start of chapter 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate the water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was 
good. And there was evening, there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. I love that throwaway line. Just think about that. God sent them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth, fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce Creatures according to their kinds, livestock, uh, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and all creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make human images, human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air. Birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves in the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts in the earth and the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now this may come as a surprise to you, but the very first concern of this creation story is not the how and the what of creation, but rather who we are to worship. I know we haven't always heard the Genesis 1 story that way. Our cultural ears have tuned us to various themes, particularly themes which emerged following the Renaissance and the rise of modern science. And so as a result, we've often spent a lot of time in these chapters discussing the hows and the whats and the whens and the what's going on in creation itself, rather than focusing on the who of creation. But we've got to get the who right first. And Genesis 1 is actually all about that before it's about anything else because who we worship affects everything else. It affects our identity. It affects our work. It affects our sexuality. It affects our relationship. It affects actually the very earth, the very air, the very water. It affects our world. It affects our purpose and our identity in life, our destiny. As humans, 
worshiping the God in whose image we were created, we are able to keep reflecting his character and, and his goodness to the world. That's why we were created. This worship, it's like it keeps us clear and shiny. It's like we're a mirror, and as we continue to worship, God rubs off the dirt. We stay reflective. But as we stop worshiping, if we don't worship, if we're not worshiping the true God, it's like we get fuzzy or dirty or unclear. We get obscured in some way or we start kind of angling the wrong direction and we end up reflecting God less than we were designed to. Because we can't image God accurately if we don't worship God properly. Well, in order to hear this Genesis story, right, and I know a lot of us have spent time in this story, we've heard it lots, but we have to remember who got this story first. Like, who actually received the story as we have it? Who got it? Who read it? Does anyone remember who that would have been? Stabs at an idea. Who, who, who first got the story? Yep. So who would have heard it first, in particular? Moses is the traditional author of this. So it would have been the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. That's who would have heard it first. I'm not saying there wouldn't have been stories, but... In this form, this is who. And do you remember where they would have been when they first heard this story? Anyone? Probably in the wilderness. Probably at the foot of Mount Sinai, where Moses received the law. And was perhaps even up there at the time as the stories were coming down. What was their spiritual backstory, these these people who were now in the wilderness at the foot of the mountain? Well, they were the children of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob later on had his name changed to Israel. That's why we often refer to them as the children of Israel or even Israelites. But they knew very, very little about the God who had spoken to their forefathers. You know, they would have had bits of story here. They would have heard that maybe they they heard down through there was a promise given, promise of a great nation, promise of a land. But they'd been in Egypt for centuries you know, longer than the United States or Canada have been countries. These people have been in Egypt a long time. Maybe they would have heard about voices in the dark or surprising children, or maybe they would have wondered every once in a while why they circumcised their kids. I'm not sure, but they wouldn't have known much more. It's very safe to assume that these children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have had ideas about God that would have been very similar to the ideas of the culture around them, ideas that everyone else had. They would have grown up and their parents and their parents' parents and their parents' parents' parents would have grown up in, surrounded by an Egyptian culture where everything's worshipped. Like everything. Beetles and cows and bulls and cats, moon, sun, stars, the king himself, the creatures that are mythical or wild or domestic. I mean, you name it. They worshipped it in Egypt and in many of the surrounding cultures. And as with any cultures that venerate or worship beings that are not God, the Egyptian culture had become wildly oppressive, hateful. And these children of Israel, now over the course of four centuries, had fallen out of favor, and they actually had become a slave people, enslaved to these Egyptian rulers, who, of course, considered themselves to be images of God. Everything was in its place. That's their purpose in life. But then something profound happened. Something unexpected. Something they didn't fully understand. The God of their forefathers, the God they would have only heard vaguely about, suddenly stepped back into their story. This God of whom they were only dimly aware appeared to Moses in a burning bush and then sent this Moses to rescue them out of slavery in Egypt. And he even gave himself a personal name, Yahweh. 
and through a mighty power encounter between this God Yahweh and all the gods of Egypt because that's what was going on with all the plagues that happened. It's this big power encounter between all these various Egyptian gods where God is shown to be more powerful. God is shown to be the true God. Yahweh showed Egyptians and Israelites alike just how powerful he was. And then under God, Moses led these people out of Egypt, loaded down with possessions and cattle, through the Red Sea, and now to the foot of this rumbling mountain of God. And we hear this whole story narrated in the second book in the Bible, Exodus. But who was this Yahweh that had rescued them? You know, if you'd walked through the crowd that day at the foot of the mountain and asked them, tell me a little bit about this God who rescued you, you would have been met with a lot of blank stares. They would not, they don't really know. Like, who is he? They probably would have thrown out some ideas that would have been oddly similar to all the other ideas that people had about the gods. Except maybe that, well, he's more powerful, like obviously. Because, boy, have I got a story to tell you. If you'd have asked them, like, how do you keep this God happy? How do you stay right relationship with him? The things they would have said would have, again, been quite similar to the ideas that people had around them in their culture. And then if you'd ask them, where is this God? then they would have started to shift in their seats and get a little uncomfortable because the truth is, in that culture, if you ask, where's your God, people can point to it. But these Israelites don't have a God they can point to because they don't have idols. They don't have statues. They were like an atheistic group. I mean, that's what they look like. Did you know that early Christians were called the same in Rome? Because everyone's got a God. He's sitting over in the corner. And these Christians... Jews as well, they don't have that. And they look like atheists to the rest of them. Well, here they are. Are you getting the picture? These people knew virtually nothing about the God who had rescued them. But they knew a whole lot about the gods that had been all around them their whole lives. In that sense, they were experts at worship. They knew the ins and outs of proper worship. As long as it was, you know, toward the sun or animals or or, or something. They knew how to worship those gods, but not how to worship the true God the true God who had created the world, the the true God who had spoken to their forefathers, the one who had now stepped in and rescued them out of slavery. And now, freshly minted from slavery, they were called God's people. They're being taken now into a new land. They're being given a new law, a whole new society, a new nation formed under this one true God so that they can now live according to His ways and reflect His goodness to each other and to the world. But let me ask you, how is that going to go exactly? I mean, is this going to work? Well, we find out very quickly that it doesn't go very well. It's actually an epic struggle all through the story. Even while Moses is up the mountain for the first time. Do you remember the story? He's like in the middle toward the end of Exodus, actually 33, 34. Moses is up the mountain getting God's instruction. God is literally writing the Ten Commandments with his finger on a stone. And what are the people of Israel doing down below? Does anyone remember? They're making a golden calf. They convince Aaron, Moses' brother, to make golden calves so they can worship them. And then they say, these are the gods who delivered us out of Egypt. This is what Moses, this is what God has to deal with. It's very painful. It's a very difficult and frustrating tale. And it continues all through the story. How in the world will these new people of God grasp who their God is? And how will they ever reflect his character to the world around them, to each other? How will they be the images of God? Well, they've got to get their worship right first because it's only as they get their worship right that they can get their lives right, which is why God starts back 
at the beginning. Right here in Genesis 1, then Genesis 2, then Genesis 3, and then on through really the whole first five books of the Old Testament, you could say are all about helping the people of God get God right. Get life right. Figure out how they can image God in, in their worship and in, in their relationships and their commerce and their work and in the ways that they treat one another and in the, in the limits and barriers and things that are placed and, and how they think and love and respond and give. In other words, it's all about helping them be the humans that God has created them to be. But as a people who are steeped in a culture where creation is worship, the worship of creation has shaped their hearts and their minds. They, they view the world around them as filled with gods and spirits and beings that are in and through everything. And, well, that kind of people need to be taken right back to the basics, right back to creation, so they can hear the story, so they can see their world in a whole new way. These people need to understand first who was over creation so that they can understand what it means for them to be created by this God who has rescued them and to whom they now owe exclusive loyalty and worship. You know, missionaries, when they've gone to like a Stone Age tribe or, or some of these, these far-flung people groups where they are shaped by animistic beliefs, and all animistic beliefs means is, is an idea that the world is animated, as it were, by spirits and beings and, and things, whether it's trees or mountains or waterfalls or, or it's evidenced in diseases that happen or bad things that happen. So missionaries would go to these groups. And of course, when you show up in a people group, they're excited to, you know, Share. They're, they're, they build friendships and they, they build trust. But as soon as they could, they would share the story of Jesus because they think, well, this is the most important thing, right? I mean, we want to get right to the chase and tell people about Jesus. And so they dive right in. There's, there's, there's this man who was born who was God and, and he lived the perfect life and he, he lived the perfect life for us and, and he did healings and miracles and he cast out demons and, and, then, and then he came and he died for us and he, he was dead, completely dead, and then he rose again. And, 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 and they're excited about this. And he ascended and now the Holy Spirit has come and we can be his followers. And guess what? People are excited. They, they want to follow Jesus. And so they do. They become Christians and they're baptized and churches are formed and, and, and the, the missionaries are rejoicing and they're excited about what has happened until then something bad happens in their lives. Maybe a kid gets sick. Maybe a crop fails. Maybe a storm comes and immediately these people would revert back to their old animistic beliefs. They would call in the shaman. They would, they would try to figure out a strategy for appeasing the angry spirits or the angry gods to try to make things right. And what the missionaries discovered is that though they had professed Jesus, they had actually just added Jesus on to what they already believed. And their belief in Jesus hadn't actually become, you know, the basics. It hadn't supplanted all these other beliefs. A side note and another sermon. That can happen a lot today with us too. But for them, what they realized is they need to change their strategy and so what they've begun to do, and they've done this for years now, as they do Bible translation and work with these uh, tribes, they began to tell us, they built friendship and trust, they began to tell them the story right from the very beginning. As in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They take them right back, how God created a good world. How he placed humans in it to fill and rule and serve and protect it. And how all the animals and the trees and the, the birds and the fish and the waters and the skies were all created by this good God. And then story by story, they would take them through. And it would take months to do this. 
months they would take them through the characters of Adam and Eve and then Cain and then Abel and then Seth and then on through you know, Lamech or Methuselah, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, maybe, maybe dancing along through and then to Terah and, and, and Abram and Sarai and then continuing through the whole story, months and months and months. All about the sacrifices, all about the need for a Savior, all for the expectation of a Messiah coming. They would go until finally one day they came to the person of Jesus who was born of a woman, born just like us. And he was seen and understood as the answer to the problem of human sin and the need for sacrifice and the need for salvation. And all this heard within the context of a good creation created by a good God that had become frustrated by human sin and yet God had not given us up and decided to pursue us on through and how this whole story is rooted in a creation that's loved by God, not ruled by evil spirits. And it's only then that these people, these men and these women, could begin to experience true freedom from the bondage that they'd known all their lives, bondage to evil spirits, and were able to then begin to truly follow Jesus as the one and the only way. Well, the same is true for these people coming out of Egypt. They needed to be taken right back to their origin story. They need to be taken right back to the beginning. And so as the Genesis story unfolds, these people find out very quickly that the sun, the moon, the stars aren't worthy of worship. <coughs> they're simply, as the story says it, they're simply, I love this, greater and lesser lights. You know, no problem. Something just God threw up in the sky one day, fourth day no less, not even, you know, not even on the first day, to govern the day and the night. And that's why you may have wondered, the, the sun and the moon in this story are never even given their proper names. Why? Because their proper names are the names of gods. You don't give a proper name to a god, so they're not even named in this story. They're just kind of, you know, God put in there, greater light, lesser light, sun and moon, important servants, given an important role, but not to be venerated, not to be worshipped. And then the story goes on, the waters, the sea, the plants, the animals, none of them are worthy of worship. I mean, they're amazing, but they're not worthy of worship because they were created by the word of the God who made us the God that we worship. And on and on and day by day, and with each new dawning day and each new act of creation, all of it pronounced good, very good. Creation is restored to its proper place under God. And as we see, and this is astonishing, it's also restored to its proper place under us, where we are called to rule, to govern. Creation's worthy of admiration, yes, worthy of our care for sure, worthy of interest, worthy of classification and conservation and stewardship, but not worthy of worship. Only God is worthy of that. I mean, why would you worship creation when you know the Creator? Well, where that really comes home for us is when then, of course, God creates humans. All these other animals, you've probably heard, there's a lot of repeating phrases in chapter 1, but you would have heard the phrase repeated over and over again that these animals or these trees were all created according to their kinds, right? Each following suit, as it were. Well, then, the God of all creation gets together with himself you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and, and, and usually scholars depict sort of the, the heavenly courts, as in the angels all get called together as well to listen in. It's like they get together and have a creative brainstorming conference, and then they come up with a plan. But here, at the pinnacle of creation, the pinnacle of all of his creative acts, God then makes beings of his own kind. That's what's going on here. Everything else created under his own kind, he now creates beings that are in his own image in his own likeness, and then he gives them a critical role to be earthly members of creation, yes, but his representatives, his rulers, his images over creation. Well, how does that connect to worship? 
All the worship of these surrounding cultures featured images of the gods. We've, we've already identified that. Bulls and goats and beetles and poles and all that. This is very true of Egypt, but more poignantly and importantly, it's extremely true of the culture that they're going into with the, you know, the Amorites and the Perizzites and Jebusites and Zites of all kinds that are there. They're going in there, and, and God knows that they're going to be constantly challenged by this. And they were. And they were, when you read the story, this was the bane of their existence. The people of God are going into this, and he wants them to worship him only. And so the first, of the, you know, the first couple of commandments, the, the, the Big Ten, are all about exclusive worship. They're all about don't make graven images, this absolute prohibition against any idols or images in creation. Why? This is important. Because the only images of God that are permitted to exist in creation are people. The images that God has already placed there so that people can look and see, oh, there is a God in charge. I can see his image walking around. And these images are not then designed to be worshipped, but rather to direct the worship of the world toward its true creator and then to reflect back the image of the creator to the world that is worshipping him. And so in that sense, we are angled like the mirrors. We're angled so that we catch the reflection and also receive the worship. That's why we, the human images of God, are able to do this astonishingly crazy thing. We're able to actually call all of creation to worship God. I read as our opening today Psalm 150, but just back two Psalms from there, Psalm 148. It's amazing. Just think about this. You, a human being, created in the image of God, have been given the authority to call all of creation, to worship him. Listen to this. It starts, praise the Lord, Psalm 148. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Isn't that crazy? You're calling, okay. Sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. I mean, have you ever thought when you go out at night to just call out to the stars, to you know, the Andromeda galaxy? Praise him. You have the authority to do that, apparently. Praise Him, you highest heavens, you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at His command they were created. And He established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. Well, that's the heavens. That's like, we wouldn't think we have any control or reference to that, right? We're called to praise them. But then it shifts to earth. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths. Lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. I was thinking that next time there's a wicked storm coming in, just go out on the front lawn and just say, Yes! Stormy winds, you're doing his bidding. Give praise to God. Your neighbors will think you're nuts, but it would be a cool experience to realize that you, as the human image of God, have the authority to do that. You, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on the earth, young men and women, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. And he has raised up for his people a horn, the praise of all his faithful servants of Israel, the people close to his heart. Praise the Lord. See, it's when we get the who of creation right that we're able to act as his images in creation, even to the point of enhancing the worship of all creation 
the creation that God loves and the creation that he's committed to making new again. Well, we covered lots of background today, but let's, let's try to bring it home and connect it. I think there's a few ways that this happens for us when we think about how we image God in our worship of him. First, I think we image God to the world he loves simply by our priority of worship, that we actually prioritize the worship of God in our lives. Genesis 1, as we've said, is all about the who of creation, but so is the whole Bible, that we are the people of God who worship the God who created the world, who designed it for our benefit, who who created the marvels and mysteries and weaved them into the warp and woof of his creation, and then ultimately came in the person of Jesus Christ. That this is the priority of our lives. That God and his worship is the priority of our hearts and our minds. Jesus himself said that the first command, or you, you can summarize all the commands in, first of all, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That we recognize that that actually sits at the center of who we are as God's people, as his images. That God, you are God, and we worship you, and we give you honor, we give you praise. We prioritize our worship of God here when we gather, of course, but on through the week in our work. We, we, we prioritize them at home. And, and then there's something significant when we gather together, and I like to think of it as, it's kind of, if you think of the image of a mirror, for example, shining, just think of a whole bunch of mirrors that get together and how as we give praise to God, we, 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 it's like we create this concentrated beam of God's goodness, you know, as we gather together and worship him for who he is. God is our priority. And, and it's important because we live in a world where we're constantly tempted to turn and worship things that are good instead of things that are God. Things that God has given as gifts that then become demonic when we worship them. They actually hurt us. The second way our worship of God uh, reflects who he is to the world he loves is found in why we worship. That we worship God because of who he is and what he's done for us. That we worship God so that he is glorified, but also so that the world hears. That as we worship the God who's rescued us, as we tell his story, the watching world begins to wonder about the God that we worship. As we speak about, lift up the name of Christ, even in our conversation with a neighbor or a friend, people around us begin to wonder about this God that we serve and we worship. In that sense, worship is evangelistic, which we don't often think about it, but it really is because as we reflect God's goodness, others see and wonder who he is. In First Peter 2, 9 and 10, I think it's on the insert in your bulletin, we talked about this at our worship team potluck a few weeks ago, um, Peter, taking a lot of the imagery and the titles that were applied to the people of God in the Old Testament, he he brings it over and he applies it to the New Testament church, to the people of God now. And he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. As we worship God, that is compelling to the world around us. It shows the good news of what Jesus has done. And the third way we reflect who God is to the world we love is really in how we worship. You know, this is so stark for the early people of God. They were surrounded by cultures that it's just gross. I mean, they regularly sacrificed their own children to the worship of the god Molech, for example. And that's why we see in the, in the scriptures explicit prohibitions not to do that. The only reason that's there is because people were doing it. 
We see how people were abused sexually, men and women and children, abused sexually as an expression of the worship of Baal, and how the people around them would perform these awful rituals just in order to get their dead gods to sort of respond to them or to stay their hands or, or not do something nasty. Well, what a difference for the people of Israel. I mean, they've been rescued by a good God who had created a good world. And now they discover that not only is this God a stronger God, but he's the only God, and he wants his people to experience his goodness. He wants, to experience, he wants them to experience his goodness by living good lives and in, in healthy relationships, holy lives, lives where people are loved and esteemed and have dignity. And that's why God would expressly forbid those kinds of awful practices, as well as other forms of abuse. Anything in worship that was designed to sort of placate anger was out of there because he's not that kind of a God. The God that's revealed in the Bible, yes, right here in the Exodus or Genesis story, but all, all the way through and ultimately in Jesus is a God of grace and compassion, a God of forgiveness and rescue, a God who actually cares how people are treated, even the littlest people that no one ever seems to remember, which is why so much of the Old Testament in particular is concerned with two things, idolatry and oppression. Those things are linked. When people stop worshiping the God in whose image you're made, they start abusing other people. That's why the prophets would always rail about that. And so much of the Old Testament law was about how God needs to be worshipped so that others were treated properly. Our translation for us, really, when we think about how we worship, is that the ways that we speak about God in our daily lives, the ways that we honor him with what we say, the way that we engage in conversation with others about what God is doing, that gives praise to God. And that explains you know, the how we worship. We worship someone who's different, someone who doesn't need to be appeased or placated. We don't come and gather to worship because we're afraid that if we didn't show up your day in worship, then that exam I have later in the week is not going to work. That's not the kind of God we worship, right? We recognize that we come not because we have to somehow make God happy because God already loves us. God has already done everything possible for us and he's worthy of our worship. We come and we just recognize, I have a prophet who used to say, he used to characterize worship as a royal waste of time. And, and what she meant by that was, you know, we don't come to try to uh, be effective and efficient in our worship, you know. We come and say, God is worthy of us just spending some time with him. He's worthy of us, in that sense, just wasting some time. You know, in in lives where we're all very pressured, we all have a lot of things to do, to say God has such priority in our lives that we can come and just be and sing and gather and reflect and worship him. How we worship says something about the God who has created us, the gifts that we offer through our art, through our work, through our service, our finances, all of that expressing the glory of God. How we worship reflects who God is. Even our responsibility in creation as kind of priests under God, something we'll explore in another week when we look specifically at creation care. We see that we have a role to play in even helping creation worship, and how we worship is part of that. In a nutshell, here it is. The more we worship the God who made us, then the more we image him or reflect him to the world he loves. The more we worship the God who made us, the more we image him to the world he loves. And there's a biblical principle, and I'll close with this. There's a biblical principle that is pervasive in Scripture, that we become like the gods we worship. We were made in the image of God, but what we see is if human beings turn their worship 
to something that's not God, something in whose image we were not made. What happens is there's this dynamic. What happens is we then begin to take on the characteristics of the thing or the God that we worship. We hear it throughout the, the scripture, but one of the clear places we hear it is in Psalm 115. It begins like this. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Remember what we talked about? Why would they say that? Because it didn't look like they had one. Verse 3, our answer, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound from their throats. And then here it is, verse 8. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. We become like the gods we worship. We begin to reflect the characteristics of the God we worship. If we worship money, we'll begin to reflect that God. It'll be evidenced in our life as we become increasingly stingy or selfish, where everything's evaluated based on its cost. If we begin to worship comfort, we'll then reflect that God of pleasure to the world, whether it's in our pursuit of things pleasurable or our avoidance of things painful. We worship toys or trends, and we're going to reflect the God of our own consumption. But if we worship Jesus, if we worship the God who made us, if we worship him in the power of the spirit that he has given to us, we will reflect him more and more and more to the world that he loves. Every time we worship, it's like God brings out the, uh, you know, the, the, the jiffy cloth and starts wiping off us so that we can more accurately reflect him to the world he loves. And isn't it a privilege to do that? Isn't it a privilege to be his worshipers, creating his image to reflect his goodness to the world he loves? Well, in closing today, would you stand? We want to sing together the doxology. We're going to sing it through twice. It's a very fitting closing for us as a service. Sing together the doxology because it really calls all the things that we have been talking about today on our role as worshipers. We'll go through it twice, so we'll save the amen to the very end. Let's try this together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. To the top. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you praise and glory for being the one who created us in your image. May we as your people more accurately, more willingly, more amazingly reflect your goodness, your love, your power, and your grace to the world that you love, the world that you have promised. 
to recreate, to restore, to rescue. As we leave today, Lord, I ask that you would send us by your Spirit, that we may walk in your grace and in your power, reflecting your goodness in every conversation, in our work, in our play, in our homes and our schools. Everywhere you go, may people see in us their God, the God who made them. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you today. Thank you for being here. Go in peace.